Hi, this is Ron Darling. Uh, this is Skip Lockwood. Hi, I'm Ron Swoboda of the 69 New York Mets, and you're listening to Mets Musings with Gary Mack. Now it's time for some New York Mets baseball talk. Here's Gary Mack bringing you the latest news and analysis from Mets Nation and the world of baseball on another edition of Mets Musings. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another edition of Mets Musings. I'm your host, Gary Mack, and uh, we've got a special show for you today. I'm going to give you some updates on the regular season, and then we're going to go to a special interview that we pulled out of the archives just for you. It's an interview with former Met Craig Swan, and uh, I think you'll enjoy it. It's a lot of fun. A lot of uh, good antidotes from him. But first, let's get some up-to-the-minute news with the New York Mets. And congratulations go out to Buck Showalter, who won his fourth Manager of the Year award. Congratulations to Buck in his first year as Mets manager, taking home some hardware. And to Jeff McNeil as well. Jeff McNeil was the uh, Silver Slugger. He won that award at second base for the Mets. So congratulations to um, to uh, Jeff McNeil. Now, the uh, Mets have claimed hard-throwing right-handed reliever Stephen Ridings off waivers from the Yankees. Riding stuff is legit. He's got a fastball that's reached as high as 100 mile, 101 miles per hour. He's 27. He missed the entire season last year due to a right shoulder impingement and tossed two scoreless innings over two rehab outings in September. His uh, taste of the big leagues came with the Yankees in 2021. We had a 1.8 ERA over five relief appearances while walking tune striking out seven during that stint his fastball averaged 97.1 miles per hour and his slider averaged 85.6 miles per hour and he will be a candidate for the Mets bullpen you know um, the Mets lost uh, or could lose uh, Adam Adovino Tremor May Seth Lugo all uh, free agents, so they really don't have much in the bullpen right now. It's uh, uh, what we've got Edwin Diaz, who they did sign and they needed to sign Edwin Diaz. Uh, but then you have Drew Smith, uh, maybe Stephen Ridings now, uh, Stephen Nogasek, uh, maybe um, uh, Bryce Montez de Orca. He could be a candidate this year. We'll see and whoever else they look to add and to, uh, you know, via trade or free agency. Uh, as far as the free agency goes, qualifying offers were extended to Jacob DeGrom, Brandon Nimmo, and Chris Bassett, and they were denied by all three. No surprise there. Uh There's a lot of uh, action uh, for especially Brandon Nimmo, a few teams, the Mariners and the Blue Jays, for instance, are interested in him. So the Mets are going to have to uh, see what they want to do with Brandon Nimmo. 
I think it's a necessary signing, and they have to offer him what he wants to get him back, but we'll wait and see how that plays out. They did not offer Taiwan Walker a uh, a qualifying offer. He made like six million last year. I guess they feel he wasn't in that neighborhood of a, a nineteen and a half million dollar pitcher, so they did not offer him a contract. And no word on if there's any interest in him. I'm sure there'll be. There's always interest in for uh, starting pitching. The Mets did pick up the option on Carlos Carrasco and John Curtis. Curtis is an interesting. Uh, case as he signed last year with the Mets, even though he was recovering from Tommy John surgery, they took a flyer, they picked up the op, they had an option for this year, and they picked it up again. So maybe we'll see Curtis at some point in the Mets bullpen. He'll be another candidate for the bullpen. And with picking up the option on Carrasco, the uh, the starting rotation looks like right now it's it's Scherza and Carrasco and McGill and Peterson and could be Lucchese uh, and whoever else. But I'm sure there's a deal in the making. The Mets are not going to st- stand pat with that uh, just with that uh, lineup. So they're going to try to add on top flight pitching, I would imagine, as the free agent market heats up even more. And uh, like I said, they've, they've got to try to sign Nimmo. There are rumors that they may try to sign Conforto, um, which would be interesting to bring him back, uh, bring him back maybe as a DH if his shoulder's still bothering more. We know he's a good defender, so we know he can play the outfield. We know he can play in New York. So would not be a bad choice bringing back Michael Conforto who didn't play at all last year due to a shoulder injury, had surgery in January, and should be ready to go and in good uh, health. Uh, his agent, Scott Boris, says he's throwing the ball about 120 feet now, so he'll have to uh, practically uh, you know, double that, I guess, by the time spring training comes. But he's progressing, and he can hit, so uh, it may not be a bad choice to bring him back. All right. Um uh, so, as I said, we have a great interview for you, and we want to get right to that. So, let's take a quick break and come back with my interview with Craig Swan. Baseball and BBQ, your place for interesting baseball talk, opinions, and history. Baseball and BBQ, your place for barbecue recipes, tips, and interviews from the world of barbecue. If you like baseball and if you like barbecue, then tune in to Baseball and BBQ. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and BaseballTalkRadio.com. Wouldn't it be great if you could get a Ph.D. in life through baseball? Welcome to Baseball Ph.D., a tour company for your brain. 30 major league teams, 100 places to see. Let's touch them all as we make the road trip of a lifetime. Check out my Facebook group. It's at facebook.com slash Mets Musings. Go check it out and don't forget to call the hotline. It's 516 619 6341. 
I'm joined now by uh, a former New York Mets pitcher, probably one of the brightest spots in a dark era in Mets baseball. He was drafted third in the 1972 amateur draft by the Mets. Opening day starter, uh, he won the National League ERA title in 1978. Uh, had a 14-13 record with 10 complete games in 1979 with a team that finished 35 games out of first place. Uh, we all knew him and loved him as number 27. He is Mr. Craig Swan, and he joins us now on Mets Musing. Craig, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Gary. Nice to be here. So uh, let's start off with uh, your career. You were drafted, as I said, in the third round by the Mets. And right. What was draft day like waiting for that call? Did you expect to go? Uh, where did you expect to go? Or did you expect it all to go? Well, I did expect to go. I had pitched four years at Arizona State and was uh, All-American my last two years. But something very strange happened on draft day. Uh, I had a friend who worked for the Phoenix Gazette. His name was Tim Tires. And he was, you know, they used to send it on that, that UPI AP tape. And he says, Swanee, as soon as I see you, <laughs> I'll call you. So I gave him my number, and I'm waiting and waiting and waiting, and the whole first day is gone. And I finally called Tim. I said, Tim, you got anything? He goes, no, I don't know what's wrong. And so the second day, they kept going, and uh, at the end of the second day, he calls me and said, you were drafted in the third round. We lost it on the UPI AP ticker tape thing. (laughs) And so it wasn't showed up. So for two days, I didn't think I got drafted. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> now everything is so instantaneous it's just it's it's hard to imagine that <laughs> right 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 yeah yeah i can't you know not today that wouldn't happen <laughs> and uh what were your thoughts when you heard that you were drafted by the mets having that great uh, pitching staff uh, with uh, Seaver and kuzman and matlack well that's just it i mean when i then i you know i look at the pitchers i said well it's going to take me a long time to get up there these are you know great pitchers um but as pitchers go we get hurt and you know spots open up so it didn't take me too long to get up and after a couple years in the minors i was i was nibbling at the at the you know at the big leagues anyway Yes, you certainly were, and, and uh, you did have uh, uh, cups of coffee, I guess it would be fair to say, in the 73, 74, and 75, and right. uh, got to play in 76, made the team, got to play with uh, Seaver and Kuzman, and, and I think Matlack was still there in 76, was he not? I, I think so, yeah, I, I, I believe so. Yeah, I know John pretty well. And then, of course, uh, you were there in 77 when the whole Midnight Massacre happened in June with the trading of Seaver and, and Kingman. Yeah. And uh, yeah. uh, what was the feeling around the team at that time? Well, losing Tom was kind of rough. He was, you know, he was a kind of our leader. He was the player rep. Um, he did all that work uh, with Marvin Miller and, you know, all the player reps. Uh, to establish free agency, and he worked real hard at that. So he had, besides being a great pitcher, he had our total respect for, you know, the amount of work he put in on this. And so losing him was a really rough, rough, rough thing for the team. I I would uh, imagine. And then the the loss of Kingman, your offense as well? Well, Dave... Dave, uh, you know, if he hit it, it was gone. But, you know, he, <laughs> you know, sometimes he'd miss that thing by two or three feet too. <laughs> um, 
But, yeah, and our offense, you know, throughout the late 70s was just going down because, you know, the the uh, Payson's uh, and M. Donald Grant, they did not want to get involved with the free agency of 76. And so for four years, you know, we di- we just lost our better players. And mm-hmm. uh, and losing Tom, you know, that, that was – that was a tough one, and I think part of that might have been because he was the player rep. A lot of the player reps of those those teams were traded away, and you know after free agency uh, came in. Mm-hmm. And of yeah. course, uh, uh, M. Donald Grant and uh, uh, really Dick Young, uh, the sports reporter in New York at the time, he really did a hatchet job on Seaver to make him look bad and. Uh, there was some bad blood there between Seaver and M. Donald Grant. It just, I remember the whole thing is getting very messy and, uh, uh, very, it it just broke the hearts of Met fans when, when Seaver was traded away that year. Well, it seemed like Dick Young before free agency, he was kind of on the player's side. And then after free free agency, he kind of went on the owner side, and I think M. Donald might have had him in his back pocket, yeah. but I don't know that for sure. <laughs> I, I think there may have been some, York, you know? <laughs> maybe it's some cash going back and forth. There. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he uh, after free agency, Dick Young kind of kind of turned on the players for some reason. Maybe uh, who knows? A lot of a lot of a lot of people uh, didn't think uh, baseball players should be making that kind of money. <laughs> <laughs> and they still and don't. That, and now, yeah, and they still don't. And it's a little bigger now, though. <laughs> In fact, I was uh, I was reading that uh, uh, at one point, I believe it was after 1979, you signed the richest contract for a New York Met pitcher, uh, right? In uh, Mets history, making the obnoxious sum of. Uh, <laughs> Three point two five million dollars over five years. That was the biggest one they had signed. We had signed Foster, but you know he was an outfielder. Yeah. yeah. Do, yeah, do yeah. you ever yeah. feel like you were born like uh, five years too early? Uh, I always told my parents they could have waited ten years. <laughs> they could have t- waited ten. <laughs> you might have better. You might have been on that eighty sixteen then. Yes, yes. I got my arm was so bad by '84. I was, I was, you know, I was done. <laughs> but uh, take us through '78 now. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, nine and six record, but you led the ERA uh, in the National League with a two point four three. You always seem to be in the top ten of uh, more than one pitching categories, and mm-hmm. uh, unfortunately, uh, as we said, you were. Uh, not with the best of teams, both offensively and uh, bullpen-wise. I know you probably wouldn't uh, say that, that your bullpen probably lost a lot of games for you. But um, uh, what was it like struggling through uh, pitching so well mm-hmm. and yet um, not having reflected uh, as far as the one wins and losses go? Well, as one one photographer, I forget George Kalinsky. You might know that name. Yes, I do. Yeah. He had a picture a picture book of the Mets, and he picture, he uh, labeled this time of the Mets as the lean years. And I definitely played during the lean years. <laughs> and it was again, we were not getting, we were losing our best players, and they wouldn't sign any free agents. Uh, pitching, you know, it was it was frustrating because, you know, if I gave up a run or two, I, I you know. Would usually get a loss, and um, although at some point I thought it made me a better pitcher too, because I knew I couldn't give up many runs, so I kind of had to buckle down. 
and um, you know just do the best I could. One of the the funnier stats of that, or funny, strange, sad stat, uh, stats about that that uh, year, was at All Star break. My record was one po- one and five with a two point five ERA. <laughs> <laughs> And luckily, I kept it going. So you know, at least I got to, to nine wins. And I think I was the first or second pitcher in history to actually win the earned run average as a starter and not win ten games. Wow, it's it's so, unbelievable. Yeah, it was it was frustrating. But you know, we were trying as hard as we can could. We just we didn't have very good players. Right, right. That was a lot of. Uh... Uh, yeah. <laughs> journeyman coming through New York at that time. That's right. That's right. And uh, they were getting the guys that weren't costing much money, and they were keeping the costs down. And then across the town, there's George Steinbrenner. You know, he's he's spending as much money as he can, and you know, gets gets a lot of winning teams because he did it. Now you did. Uh, we did say that you did play with some of the uh, uh, best players in Mets history. Um, uh, what was it like playing with Jerry Kuzman? Did, was he uh, uh, helpful to you at all, uh, as well as Tom Seaver? Uh, yeah, they both were very helpful to me. Uh, Tom more about um, you know how to pitch each hitter because we were similar right-handed, hard-throwing pitchers. So the pitch selection that we make uh, with each hitters, I would I would sit next to Tom in the dugout and just you know, okay, what would you throw this guy now? What location? What pitch? And that was very helpful. And then Kuzi was 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 wonderful because he was he was always helping me out with my mechanics in the bullpen. So I had some pretty good coaches there, uh, besides my real coaches, but, you know, great 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 players helping me out. Well, it's it's not too bad a Hall of Famer and and, uh, yeah. and uh, <laughs> another yeah. yeah a pretty good starter though. Uh, Kuzi did have a bad year. That one year you were there, he he did lose twenty games. Uh, bounced back the next year, and uh, right. and as you said, that was a a tough time in history. Um, oh, yeah. Now, yeah. Uh, with the dawn of the '80s, did you start to see any of the uh, um, uh, potential that uh, once the Double Days took over and the Wilpons and uh, uh, they started drafting some of the younger players? Well, I did. I was so excited that we were getting new membership. I mean, ownership because you know the, the other guy, the, the, the old ownership again wasn't going to go with free agency it didn't look like and we to compete we had to get some of those free agents so when Nellie and uh, Fred took over the team I was elated and uh, you know it took them a couple years I think one of the bigger ones was when they got Keith Hernandez Mm -hmm. Um, you know they got George early but George George Foster he couldn't uh, he didn't have all those Cincinnati Reds hitters around him like he did in Cincinnati. <laughs> yeah. And so they pitched around him, and he was swinging at stuff in the dirt, and the poor guy tried as hard as he could, but, you know, couldn't quite live up to that contract. Right, right. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I guess your biggest season would have been 79 then, uh, 14 and 13. Uh, you had, I believe, 10 complete games, mm-hmm. uh, which is a rarity nowadays, of course. Yeah, they don't let them go. No. <laughs> no. I was I always wondering. I go, God, if I only had to throw 100 pitches, I wonder how long I could have lasted. You know? <laughs> and you pitched a lot of innings in your career, too. Another thing that they don't let them do nowadays. Right, right, right. 
Well, a funny story down in Tidewater because I broke my elbow in '74 pitching, and uh, so I go back down to Tidewater the next year and see if I can pitch. You know, after I healed, mm-hmm. and Joe Frazier was the manager uh-huh. uh, in Tidewater, and uh, I, my arm was feeling pretty good, but he would, and this wouldn't happen today at all. When I pitched, I started a game. Let's say on Monday. My day on the throw on the side would be Wednesday, a day, you know, two days after mm-hmm. I started. He wouldn't let me warm up until the end of the game because he might use me in relief. And he did <laughs> twice, and I got two saves that year in Tidewater besides starting. <laughs> now, it, yeah, I don't, yeah. uh, any thoughts at all in, in uh, when you did suffer through some uh, injuries, uh, a, a lot of injuries in the, in yeah. the 80s. Uh, some of them were a little freaky, you might say. It real, yeah, slightly. <laughs> <laughs> I had stomach problems. I had boils in my armpit. Uh, you know, I I can't remember them all. <laughs> now, I, I seem uh, to remember at the time that some of that they said might have been stress. Was that anything to do uh, at all? Do you think, or? Uh, well, I think some of the stomach stuff might have been stress. But that didn't really hold me back as much as the arm stuff, mm-hmm. and that was uh, stress in a different form. And I always thought that, uh, you know, I the, one of the things that contributed to my injuries was I tried too hard. Okay. I, I was always trying to throw the ball, <laughs> you know, 100 miles an hour. And, you know, now that I look back, I was a little younger then, maybe, you know, not not as wise. And if I could have cut it back maybe 90% until I needed to throw throw hard or hardest um i might have lasted a little longer so i think i think over trying really uh contributed to the biggest part of my injuries and and they say that's a lot of it now that that guys do try to throw the ball through the wall instead of learning how to control it better uh uh, you know guys like koufax and and even those guys uh till they cut it back down they had control issues and problems and all sorts of deals yeah, the one the ones I loved the most were like Randy Jones and Tommy John, and they couldn't break a pane of glass. <laughs> they could pitch every other day. Yeah. <laughs> and little now, thinker, a little slider. That's all they had. In uh, in 1981, you had a uh, weird injury happen to you. You suffered a fractured rib. Do you want to talk about that at all? Oh, well, that was a comeback. Yeah, I'd come back from the rotator cuff tear. Uh, and pitched. I was actually the first pitcher to come back from that injury mm-hmm. because uh, they hadn't perfected the arthroscopic surgery yet. So I was out pitching. Uh, I was back in '81, and uh, we were playing up in Montreal. And uh, I think this might be a record, Gary. Also, I have some dubious records. Um, <laughs> Tim <laughs> Tim Raines was leading off. You know, great player. And uh, first pitch, base hit between third and, and short, okay? okay? And Ron Hodges is catching. And so we know Range is going to steal, so Hodjo calls for a pitch out. And so I throw a pitch out. Hodjo comes throwing to second, throws it too low, and hits me in the ribs and breaks one of my ribs. <laughs> <laughs> and so basically, Range got to second. I was removed from the game, really throwing only one official pitch and a pitch out. Um and Rain scores. We never took the lead, so I threw one official pitch and I got the loss. <laughs> <laughs> 
So I don't know if there's anybody who's been done that, but I, 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 that might be some sort of record. <laughs> yeah, that could be a record. I'll take it. I don't care. <laughs> And it's it's funny you mentioned Tim Raines because uh, now the talk is uh, uh, Tim Raines going to the Hall of Fame possibly within the next. He has two years remaining on the ballot, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, is he a Hall of Fame player in your estimation? I gosh, I kind of think so. Boy, he was so tough. I, I I always thought he was one of the better players of my day, but I I don't lo- I don't know all the numbers and stuff. Uh-huh. You know, like you know, I don't follow the numbers, but he sure was a quality player. And and you've played against and with some uh, some Hall of Famers. Uh, Joe Torre was your manager for a couple sure. of years there. Uh, Absolutely. What can you tell us about Joe Torre? Well, Joe, you know he came. He was a player. I think a player manager his first year with the Mets. Um, you know, and he was kind of like a player. So he was he was a good manager because I don't know. He just you know everything was always very calm and. And, you know, nothing, never, not a lot of yelling. And uh, <laughs> he knew the game, so he, we just talked about that stuff. So he was a rare player's manager for me. And uh, uh, you've also played with uh, uh, Rusty Staub. And... Rust, Rusty, one of my favorite people on the planet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, he definitely was. He was, a, he was one of the nicest guys I'd ever played with, and we lockered next to each other for about four years. And I think uh, definitely, I think he's a, he's a Hall of Famer. Uh, I mean, uh, not too many guys uh, got as many hits in both leagues as Rusty Staub did, and uh, uh, I don't know why he's not in the Hall of Fame. But uh, really, uh, he was a great ball player. I really enjoyed watching him play. Yeah, had a really long, long career too. And uh, you mentioned Ron Hodges. I'm an old catcher myself, so uh, I love the catches. Ron Hodges, uh-huh, I remember. Sure. And John yeah. Stearns, of course, uh, uh, right. uh, some of the players. He played with a young Wally Backman uh, a little bit. Uh, what can you tell us about Wally that you remember? Wally? Well, Wally and I, one of my favorite stories to tell is about Wally. And uh, I, I've always been a sailor. My mom put me in the sailing school when I was nine years old in California. So I always sailed. And I used to rent catamarans off the beach down in Treasure Island where we had spring training over in St. Pete. And Wally and I, I think we were we were held back in spring training. Both had bad arms, and I took him out sailing in the catamaran once. And uh, we're about three quarters of a mile offshore, and the boat flips over. Not a big deal. They flip over, and you can reflip them and get back on. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, so we reflipped it, and when you flip the boat back over, you kind of get in between the hulls as you pull down. The other hull kind of on top of you, and then when it starts to come, you jump in between the hulls. And we did that, and we were hanging on to the trampoline, which is under the hulls. And I said, okay, Wally, let's just swim under the hulls and get on the boat. As we swam under the, uh, the hulls to get on the boat, I didn't notice, but the front sail had pleated itself on one of the jib cleats. And as we let go of the boat, it started sailing away from us about five miles an hour toward Mexico. <laughs> I swam as hard as I could for maybe a minute, and I wasn't catching it. And I said, okay. I turned to Wally. I said, Wally, we've got to swim in. How good a swimmer are you? He says, well, Swanee, I'm not so good. I said, well, you stay about 20 feet away from me, and we'll just go in nice and slow, because I didn't want him grabbing me or something. <laughs> <laughs> and we took 45 minutes. I, you know, I had him lay on his back and rest and do the side stroke and... 
45 minutes, we drag ourselves up on the shore, and I turn around, and I can just barely see my sail and my mast because the boat's headed the other way. And all of a sudden, I see a windsurfer streaking across the horizon. He looks like he's out just about as far as my boat. And he drops his ma- he drops his sail, and I see my boat turn around, and he sailed it right to us on the beach and said, I saw the whole thing happen. Here's your boat. And we sailed back out and got his windsurfer. <laughs> well, we almost lost Wally, so he wouldn't have been on the 86 team. <laughs> well, thankfully, we didn't lose either one of you guys. <laughs> uh, yeah, we made it. We made it. <laughs> uh, so um, now in the... Uh, I guess it was 82, you came back uh, mm-hmm. and uh, finished with an 11-7 record, a 3.3 ERA, and uh, finished second at Joe Morgan for Comeback Player of the Year. That must have been uh, uh, quite uh, a feeling to come back after a couple of tough years. It sure was. And, uh, you know, that, that rotator cuff was uh, was something that, again, nobody had come back from. And I got real lucky on that one because Dr. Parks, who was our team physician at the, at the time, decided not to do the big surgery where they had to cut through all your major muscle groups to get to the rotator cuff, repair the rotator cuff, and then sew all those muscles back together. When he found the dye leaking out of my shoulder, he said, Swanee, we're, we're going to try something new with you. And I said, what's that? He goes, we're not going to do anything. For nine months, I don't want you throwing a baseball, lifting weights, no physical therapy, no chopping wood, um, something I like to do in Connecticut in the winter. And uh, <laughs> so he said, if I find you doing anything with your, you know, your arm, I'm going to put you in a sling for nine months. The idea is where the tear was. If we didn't stress the tear, mm-hmm. the body's natural you know, scarring tissue will lay over the tear, mm-hmm. and then we can strengthen the arm down the road but we want that tear to be filled up with that scar tissue. Right. And so that's what we did, and that was the main reason, uh, one of the main reasons that I was able to come back for that that 82 season. And then in, uh, was it the spring of 83 when you you tore the myofascial tissue? Fascial, that's correct. Yeah, yeah, off the tricep. And that really opened up a whole new uh, career for you down the road, didn't it? Well, it's a, that's it's exactly the same tissue that Rolfing works on. And uh, I thought it was kind of strange that the, the thing that actually finished me off from baseball is what I went on to, to work on for the next 28 years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was the covering of the muscle. The myofascial tissue is something that, you know, covers the muscle and forms the tendons at the end. It's kind of like our muscles are contained in these white fascial sacs. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, when a hand surgeon went into the tricep, he said, oh, that's what you tore. And he said, I cut up as much of the scar tissue away, but the uh, the way the body heals, the scar tissue is probably going to form over the nerve that was getting impinged. And uh, I tried one more time for, with the Angels uh, in spring training in 85 and uh, had the same symptoms. So that was the end of my career. And opened up a new career. <laughs> Well, it actually did. When Gene Mock, uh, that rough, tough manager for the Angels, called me in, um, one of my favorite stories about Gene is I had pitched uh, pretty well that spring training, but once I got past third inning, Gary, I, c- I could feel this tingling going down my arms, and it didn't hurt or anything, but you know, the pitching coach, Mar- uh, pitching coach Marcel Lashman would come and show me the chart, and right about where I, could, I felt this tingling, 
the radar gun would go from 91 to 80. Wow. And I couldn't throw it any harder. So they only needed a starter. And so, uh, you know, I did really well until we had to go three or four innings, and then they could see it on the radar gun. And they kept me on until the very last day of spring training. And Gene Mock calls me in the office, and he's standing by the door. And uh, I said, I, I know, Gene, it's okay. And he's, this man started crying because he was having to release me. I had to grab him by the shoulder, Gary, walk him around his desk, and put him in his chair. He goes, you tried so hard. I said, yeah, but it's okay, Gene. My arm's shot. It's okay. He goes, you tried so hard. I said, it's okay, Gene. Now that's a rare occasion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, a manager, you know, is crying because he's releasing a player you don't see that much. Now, is there any thought at all about going to the bullpen at all anywhere at that time? Because you could uh, get they in. They made mention of that. Uh, I, I mentioned it, and they said, no, we really need a starter, not a reliever. And they had enough relievers. And, and I guess in, in today's ball, you'd be shopping yourself all around, but in those days, they didn't do that as much. Not so much. No, yeah. no, no. But, you know, I got released that day, and the next day I was, I was flying out of LAX uh, back to New York, and that's where I called the Rolf Institute and started my new career. I called them right from the, right from the uh, airport with the quarters in the pay machine. Remember those days? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> had a lot of quarters. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, I talked, I got to talk to the president of the Rolf Institute and he said, well, what have you been doing the last, you know, 15 years? I said, uh, well, I've been trying to throw a baseball low in the strike zone. He said, what? <laughs> I said, well, I was a pitcher. And he goes, okay, well, you got to get a year of anatomy. He asked me, uh, you know, when did you go to school last? I said, ah, uh, I graduated from Arizona State in 82. And it was 85. He goes, well, you need to go back for a year of anatomy and physiology at the college level and then just give us a call. And uh, within a week of being released, I was at Fairfield University taking the entire year that summer on those accelerated courses. Wow, that's a great story. And and then yet you uh, had your own institute of rolfing in uh, uh, Greenwich, Connecticut. Oh, I had my Rolfing office, yes, yes. I, I had to write an old Greenwich there for the last uh, 15 years. My son uh, is running the office now. He he tried the business world after a degree in Dartmouth, and he ran to Rolfing after two years in business. And you also uh, got to help a former teammate in Tom Siva. Oh, with the Rolfing, his back. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> he uh, We used to play quite a bit of squash, and squash is kind of a – Tough game because the wood floors, the stops and goes, and we used to play doubles against other doubles team. And one day I saw Tom taking some aspirin. He took like ten aspirin out of his locker before the match. I said, "What are you doing?" He goes, "I'm stretching." I said, "That's not stretching. You're, what's wrong with you? <laughs> That's not stretching. You got pain. You're masking it." He goes, "Well, I have a, you know my back problem. I, I, uh, I don't feel my back after I take these ten aspirin." I said, "You can't feel anything after you take ten aspirin." <laughs> But he said, I said, Tom, you know, you might try rolfing for the back. I've helped a lot of people. And he said, well, Swanee, you know, my mom used to say when I was, you don't really want to fix anything until it breaks. And I said, well, I'm not going to argue with your mom. And I didn't say a word about it to him. He was still taking his aspirin. And about six months later, he ended up in traction at Greenwich Hospital. And I went over to visit him. And the first thing I said when I walked in the door was, are you broken enough yet? And that's when he went. <laughs> that's when he went to the rolfing. It was really neat to be able to work on him and everybody, of course, because 
it's it's very unique work and it's it's not like any physical therapy that you'd go through or and I was thinking about becoming a physical therapist or a trainer, but when I found the rolfing, there was so much um, geometry and body mechanics and things like that. I just took to it. And uh, so you ended your career in baseball, went into a, another very successful career. Uh, what did you miss most about the game? Uh, people ask me that. I only have two answers. I miss facing the hitter. That was fun. Travel, uh, press, you know, all that notoriety stuff. I didn't really like it that much. <laughs> but I miss facing the hitter, and I miss my teammates. Because I, I, I was a good team, I mean, you know, I was a, good, I was a team player, and I really enjoyed, you know, we hung around a lot together, those 25 mm-hmm. guys, because right. spring training to the end of the season is eight months, and three months of it were on the road, you know. So those are the two main things, facing the hitter and my teammates. Now, uh, also in 1982, if I may backtrack just for a second, I just sure. uh, thought just popped in my mind. You had a uh, slight altercation with the new manager, George Bamberger, uh, and uh-huh. uh, and and his friend, Frank Howard. Do you care to talk about that at all? You mean his henchman, Frank Howard. <laughs> <laughs> Well, actually, the fight wasn't with George Bamberg at all. <laughs> okay. It was, Arthur Rich- it was with Arthur Richmond, the traveling secretary. Mm-hmm. And what happened that day, we were um, we were on the – it was Paul Newman's fault. Just remember that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we, we were flying commercial because the Mets didn't want to spend any money. <laughs> and um, we get on the uh, commercial aircraft in St. Louis flying back to New York. Um Arthur Richmond comes back because all the players were in the back, all the coaches were in first class. And Arthur Richmond comes back and says, we're going to wait 30 minutes, Paul Newman's. So we go, all right. So we wait the 30 minutes, and Newman gets on in the first class. We never see him. They close the door. They wheel out on the runway. The computer breaks down, and we're on the tarmac for three hours. Oh, boy. Now they're playing. They're partying up in first class. You can hear them. <laughs> and the ball players, and I'm one of the older ones. Some of them say, "Hey, Swanee, you know we sh- we deserve first class treatment, and we're not getting it because whatever." And uh, so I go up t- t- to Arthur and I said, "Arthur, not for nothing. You know the guys are complaining that we uh, we need to get, you know should have first class service." And I guess he talked to the, s- the Stewie or something like that, and she wouldn't do it. So every time I went back, you know, 10 guys would say, Swanee, come on, get up there. <laughs> and so I kept going up there like a fool. And Arthur and I started getting a yelling match. And um, basically this yelling match went on all the way until we got off the bus at Shea Stadium. And, of course, all the coaches had had a little too much to drink because <laughs> they'd been on the tarmac for three hours with a two-hour flight. <laughs> and... and uh, so Arthur yells something at me, and I get off the bus, and I'm yelling at him. And here's Bamberger, Mamboquette, and Howard, three shoulders abreast, blocking my, my my way. And Bambi says, Swanee, that'll be enough. I said, okay, Bambi. I turned around, and Frank yelled, Swanee, you better shut your blanking mouth. <laughs> and I said, Frank, don't tell me to shut up. <laughs> and that's when he grabbed me by my my breast and lifted me straight up in the air. My feet were dangling. 
and uh, that was the that was the episode. <laughs> <laughs> he was a big man. <laughs> he was a big man. Yeah, he was felt real bad the next day and came over, hugged me, apologized, and you know, and things like that. But you know, I didn't care. Stuff like that happens all the time. <laughs> it just uh, all the press was around, so it got uh, it got blown up a little bit. Now, being involved in the health field for all those years. Uh, I don't know how much you follow the game nowadays, but there's been a, a rash of uh, uh, injuries, uh, mostly uh, Tommy John surgeries, pitchers, yes. as well a lot of, um, I don't even know how to, but the, the stomach area, muscle pulls, the intercostal, I think it is that they call it. Yeah, some of the intercostals, yeah. Yeah. Um, any feelings on what's causing these? It seems to be an epidemic uh, the last couple of years. Any uh, any thoughts on that at all? I have had some thoughts on it, especially what I do as a rolfer and, you know, see where overstressed areas on the human body is kind of where the areas I kind of work on. Um, I think what's happened is the the guys are being they're they're overdoing their workouts they're building up that fascial tissue that we talked about before uh-huh. the covering of the muscle is under a lot of stress when you build the muscle up inside the fascial tissue if the muscle is you know built up so strong you're just if you make a wrong move you know so pitching you can hurt your arm in one pitch mm-hmm. but if you make you know a wrong move with a bat or a throw and you're stronger, you're more susceptible to injury. Um, you know, I just think they've overdone the workouts. I think we've overdone this idea about this core strength, which used <laughs> to be called stomach work back in the 70s and 60s. Right. And, you know, it's just, the word core is something that I, I uh, tend to think as a rolfer has been kind of changed where, you know, back in the 70s, if some, the 60s or 70s, somebody had a, you know, a rippled, you know, abdominal wall. You got the old six pack. Yeah. You know that was that was kind of thought of as kind of that person might have some vanity issues that they have to work out that much, right? <laughs> but if you switch it over from a vanity issue to a health issue, and now replace the word, you know, stomach with the word core, then it kind of opens it up. Now we're not doing vanity stuff; we're doing health stuff. But I think they've overdone that. They're much more. Um, susceptible to injuries when they over overbuild their muscles and i think siever had one of the my favorite stories when he got to the mets he told me he had a five pound dumbbell that he used to lift lift you know a little bit with his pitching arm mm-hmm. and the players from the 56 they they warned him not to get muscle bound and you know if it was true that muscles you know gave you better performance, they'd all be bodybuilders, which I think they're kind of getting close to. But again, when you overbuild your muscles, you are much more likely to get injured. And I think that's what's happened. Uh, It's it's funny that you said it because we've had this, I do another podcast like this show, and uh, I've said the same thing when the questions come up. I think they're in too good a shape. I think they, way, they yeah. work out yeah. too much. Um, I remember listening to Keith Hernandez on a broadcast one day, and and oh. he said that he used to come into camp uh, a couple of pounds overweight and get into yeah. baseball shape. Yes, yeah, nice and slow. Give your body a rest over the winter. My favorite was Crane Pull, of course. You know, he'd come to spring training and he'd he'd go to touch his toes and he'd get down to about his knees. 
And the coach would yell at him, and Crane would yell back, I don't want to pull anything. So he just stopped right at his knees there with his hands. <laughs> and and he lasted, what, 18, 19 years as a Met, so maybe he uh, had something there. <laughs> yeah, he could hit a little bit, couldn't he? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he certainly could. Yeah, yeah. No, those were the days. We used to come in, yeah, spring training to get in shape, not to, uh, uh, I don't know. Well, you guys, used guy, to, yeah. you guys used to have to work in the off season. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> That's right. Now there's so much money, they don't even have to do that anymore. No, the money's got a little silly. So it's we never knew it was going to turn into this, Gary. When we were, you know, going for free agency in '76, we were just trying to get Seaver a hundred thousand dollars a year because he already pitched seven years, <laughs> two Cy Young, you know, two Young awards, yeah. and he's trying to get a hundred thousand a year. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, Craig, I really enjoyed this. This has been uh, just a lot of fun, and I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and uh, wish you well in your retirement. Well, thanks so much, and anytime. We're back, and I hope you enjoyed that interview with Craig Swan. (laughs) I had a lot of fun uh, going back over it and listening to it again. Uh, This news just coming in. MLB is looking into a potential CBA violations by multiple teams regarding top free agents. The one uh, that they've opened an investigation into is the Yankees and the Mets to determine if the owners improperly communicated about the free agency of AL MVP favorite Aaron Judge and this from Ken Rosenthal of The Athletic. The investigation is rooted in a column by Andy Martino of SNY earlier this month. Martino wrote the Mets were unlikely to pursue Judge in free agency, in part because of a mutual respect between Mets owner Steve Cohen and Yankees owner Hal Steinbrenner. As part of that piece, Martino wrote, talking to Mets people about this all through the year, the team in Queens see Judge as a Yankee uniquely tailored to be an icon in their uniform, stadium, and branding efforts. Owner Steve Cohen and Hal Steinbrenner enjoy a mutually respectable relationship and do not, do not expect to upend that with a high-profile bidding war. The only way people involved can see the Mets changing course and pursuing judge would be if the Yankees somehow declare themselves totally out of the bidding. Uh, to be clear, Martino didn't characterize that as the sole reason the Mets could choose to sit out the judge bidding, nor did he expressively state Cohen and Steinbrenner had talked about judges' free agency. He went on, went on to note that the Mets could be wary of signing another deal in excess of $300 million after extending Francisco Lindor last year. So... Uh, Mets tangled up in a little uh, kerfuffle here. We'll see how it shakes out. MLB will investigate and see what the outcome is, but that'll be in the future. So uh, that's going to wrap it up for this week's show. I hope you enjoyed the interview once again, and I hope you enjoyed the rest of the show, and I hope that you will tune in. If you're watching on YouTube, please hit the like and subscribe button. If you're watching anywhere else or listening anywhere else, hit the subscribe button so you'll always know when a new episode of Mets Musing is available. So until next time, remember to keep the faith, 
stay optimistic, and let's go Mets. And I'll see you next time on another edition of Mets Musings. <laughs>